Hello, uh, my name is Jeff Reist and I'm a clinical assistant professor. I'm here at the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy. I also practice in the geriatric clinic in the Department of Family Medicine at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Um, I'm going to talk today with you a little bit about uh, medications um, and their risk of falls in older adults. And I have nothing to disclose um, and um, no financial relationships with any companies. Um, I have nothing uh, to disclose at this time. The objectives are listed on your, on your screen there, and we're going to talk mainly about three specific objectives. Uh, I want to give you um, a list of medications associated with falls in the older adult. Um, and there's a lot of lists out there, and there's a lot of places that have developed lists and criteria, um, the Beers criteria, the ACOV criteria, etc. We're going to talk not only about the lists that are about there or that are out there, but we're also going to talk about what it, what is the evidence. You know, what what good evidence or what evidence at all do we have implementing specific medications and their and their risk of uh, increasing the, the falls in the older adults. And then finally, we're going to end up with identifying some potential strategies to reduce the risk of falls associated with medications. And we have a little evidence uh, to talk about in this area also, but a lot of it's good. Uh, like what I would consider geriatric common sense. So I'm going to start with a case. Uh, this is MB, and MB is a 74-year-old male, and he was recently consulted to our geriatric assessment clinic uh, due to a falling problem, uh, which is not an uncommon reason for a person to come into clinic. Um, and as always, we take his vitals, and as you can see, he's got some orthostasis uh, going on there. It's blood pressures, uh, supine and standing, um, varied a little bit, um, and... Uh, We'll talk a little bit about that uh, and some of the medications that might be causing that. His uh, diagnosis there, uh, BPH, hypertension, um, some insomnia, and a little depression. And what uh, MB comes um, for in addition to um, his falls is he's talking about sleep problems. He's having difficulty falling asleep. Um, then he also wakes up two or three times a night to go to the bathroom. He does have BPH, which is being treated, as you'll soon see. Um, and fortunately, um, with these middle-of-the-night awakenings, he is able to get back to sleep within about 15 minutes. Um, his chief complaint is really um, that he's often dizzy and states that when he stands up, he almost feels like he's going to pass out. So as a pharmacist, I'm always concerned um, about medications. Uh, and in fact, I go in and, you know, that's the first thing I talk about. And I spend a lot of time thinking about the medications and, and their risk versus benefits. And in this case, when we have a list there, as you can see, he's on a tenolol beta blocker, um, tyrosine finasteride for his BPH, uh, citalopram for his depression. He takes Tylenol PM on his own uh, for insomnia. Uh, he buys that over the counter. And then he also has a longstanding uh, prescription for diazepam or Valium that he's taken as needed for sleep um, in, on nights when he doesn't take the Tylenol PM. So as you can see from this list, and you might be thinking to yourself, as I would when I would look at a list such as this, is that you know which, which medications are, are possibly implicated in this dizziness or falling? And I can see a few there that just on clinical experience and knowing how the medications work, I might suspect. I mean, certainly the terazosin being an alpha blocker, um, and we know it's you know, propensity to cause um, vasodilation um, and some um, dizziness um, and falls would be a suspect. And a lot of us think, oh, there's probably some, you know, the beta blocker, you know, with, you know, reducing the pulse rate too much. Um, 
and certainly antidepressants. We think of antidepressants, but maybe, you know, since it's a, an SSRI, maybe it wouldn't be as risky as some of the older ones. Um, and then certainly benzodiazepines such as diazepam, we've, we've always thought that, you know, those tend to be associated with falls. So as you can see, I've kind of, you know, loaded this, this case up with some meds that we've all probably have in our, on our short list of suspects of causing dizziness and an increased risk of falls. Um, but as you look at it and think of, you know, patients in your own practice, you know, you might think of patients that are on a very similar uh, list of medications. So are any of these medications associated with dizziness? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. And we're going to come back to this case a little bit later. But right now, let's look at some statistics and let's look at the evidence. So um, in, as you can see on your slide, we have, you know, lots of statistics out there. A lot of studies have been done looking at you know, falls um, in both community dwelling and institutionalized older adults. Um, and as you can see, you know, there is a pretty high rate of fallings here. Um, incident rate of 0.7 falls per person year in, in community dwelling, according to this study, which was done in 2002. Um, and then 1.4 falls uh, per person year in hospital, 1.6 per person year in long-term care. So it's not surprising to, to me, I guess, that, that there would be an increase um, uh, rate of falls um, in an institutionalized setting. Um, people tend to be older, uh, maybe a little bit sicker, more frail, um, but, but there's lots of evidence out there and, and it is a concern um, because it's not only, you know, the fall, but, it, but it's what happens from the fall that we're most concerned about. The, you know, resulting fractures, lacerations, you know, if they hit their head and happen to be anticoagulated, there's all kinds of risks there, you know, with um, unintentional bleeding. And about five to 10% of the falls result in this is what we would call a serious outcome. Um, fracture example, as, I, as mentioned, head injury or laceration. Um, what's interesting is that accidents are the fifth leading cause of death in older adults and falls can contribute to about two thirds of those. So, you know, accidents both in the home um, and in the nursing home uh, contribute to a lot of mortality and morbidity um, um, in, in the older adult. And we know that many, many older adults, once they fall, result in a fracture, um, hip, you know, other type of bone fracture. Um, and those long-term negative outcomes um, often follow that. Um, in fact, uh, many of the older adults really fear falls because they've known you know, people of their same age or similar age or even younger um, that have fallen, they've broken something, um, and they lose their independence, not only in the short term, but many of them ever, many of them fail to regain total independence for the rest of their life. And that's a big fear because that involves things such as caregiver uh, stress. It also involves, you know, potential uh, moving uh, to a, an assisted living or a nursing facility, which, you know, they're, they're very nice, but um, a lot of times people would prefer to be in their own home and maintain that independence. So let's talk a little bit about medications and why medications might be associated with falls in the older adult. And I think most of us know that um, the adverse effect of profile of medications uh, certainly changes as we age. Um, however, the adverse effect profile of medications such as sedation, psychomotor impairment, cognitive changes, dizziness, orthostatic hypertension, you know, may occur in younger adults, um, but they tend to be really exacerbated um, in the older adult. 
Um, and you can see, just thinking about it, why things such as sedation might be associated with the risk of falls. You know, certainly, you know, not being able to be as awake, you know, maybe not um, being able to concentrate as much, certainly cognitive changes if we have some delirium um, or some drug-induced um, cognitive changes, you know, not being able to think as clearly could put us at risk for falls. Um, and certainly we think of dizziness, um, especially as it relates to orthostatic hypertension um, from certain classes of medications um, as a major contributing factor to falls. And these are all um, adverse effects of, of very commonly used medications um, that, that, we, um, that we encounter all the time. So not only the medications um, come into play, but also the physiological changes of aging uh, really compounds this problem. We have the pharmacokinetic changes as well as pharmacodynamic changes that occur. Uh, pharmacokinetic changes such as decreased renal function, decreased hepatic function, um, these both result in extended half-lives of medications, um, which results in, of course, accumulation of both the medication, but also the metabolites. Uh, many of the medications we use uh, especially a lot of the psychotropics, the centrally acting medications, have what we call active metabolites, and those, those, those um, active metabolites might actually even have longer half-lives than some of the, um, the parent drugs. Um, in fact, many of them are eventually marketed as new drugs. Um, but, uh, so we, we have to be concerned about that, uh, because as the half-life of a medication um, is extended because of decreased renal function or hepatic function, uh, we're going to have accumulation. We're going to have higher blood levels with continued dosing until they get to, to steady state. Um, and, and those can result in you know, much higher concentrations in the brain and also an increase in the side effects. Pharmacodynamic changes um, are really more, you know, how does our body respond to the medication that's on board? And certainly this interplays with pharmacokinetic changes, but it, you know, if you think about the receptors that these medications act on in the, in the case of many drugs that um, cause orthostatic hypotension, uh, affect our baroreceptors. And these receptors can become more sensitive um, to the medications as we age. Um, the volume of distribution of medications changes. This is more of a pharmacokinetic change again. But as, as we age, we get a decrease in, in total body water and lean body mass um, and an increase in body fat. So many of the medications that are water-soluble, since there's less water on board, the actual concentrations of the drugs are higher. So again, the same dose in an older person might result in a larger uh, or a higher blood level um, than in a younger person. Um, well, you might think, well, if we have an increase in body fat, then those drugs that are fat-soluble or lipid-soluble, that should be a good thing because they have a higher um, volume of distribution, so the absolute um, concentration would be less, but actually we're not out of the woods with the fat-soluble drugs either um, because we tend to reduce clearance of those drugs uh, because there's less um, drug that is being cleared because it's, out, it's stored in the fat, so we have longer duration of action of those drugs. So a couple examples um, in that area to kind of bring it home here. Um, digoxin. Uh, digoxin is a water-soluble drug. Um, and in a, a younger person, it has a volume of distribution of about six to seven liters per kilogram. Um, whereas in an older adult, um, that volume of distribution shrinks to about three to four uh, liters per kilogram. So that cuts it about in half. So, I mean, that explains a little bit why um, in the older adult, like for example, on the Beers criteria, digoxins listed there in doses exceeding 0.125 milligrams per day. So as long as we keep that dose down to about 0.125, 
milligrams, um, we're okay with digoxin, but increasing to higher doses because of that, um, that decrease in body water and resultant increase in concentration can cause some problems. And we all know that digoxin is, is a drug that has um, a fairly narrow therapeutic index, um, and it still is a result um, of quite a few hospital admissions for digitoxicity. Um, an example of a lipid-soluble drug that we need to be concerned about are the benzodiazepines, uh, things such as diazepam, lorazepam, etc. Those are lipid-soluble drugs, um, and those actually then result in extended duration of action, especially with the longer-acting benzodiazepines, because they are, they are um, going to partition into the body fat. So we've got a lot of lists out there, um, and when I was thinking about preparing for this, I thought, well, I could probably do 40 or 50 slides just on the various lists that are out there, but I thought that might be kind of boring um, because many of them are repetitive um, and a lot of them have you know, many medications in common. Um, but probably the most common list that we have is the Beers criteria. Um, and many of the medications listed on the Beers criteria list um, are on there because of increasing risk of falls. Uh, we have years of anecdotal information, lots of personal experience. Um, when you actually go out and look at the evidence, though, you find out there's actually conflicting studies, and we're going to see that in some of the studies we look at a little bit later in the program. Um, I, would, I would bet that most of us that work in geriatrics have our own personal list, medications that we have had um, patients on that have, um, that have fallen, that have become dizzy from, uh, medications that just because of the pharmacology um, and the adverse effect profile, we're a little bit leery about um, using in the older adults. Um, and listed on this slide, I have what most of us would consider the, most of us would consider the prime suspects um, for medications and falls. Um, when we look at a medication regimen, um, oftentimes um, we will be looking for medications from the classes listed on the slide. Um, and the first four are the, the traditional psychotropic medications, antidepressants, antipsychotics, sedative hypnotics, and anti-anxiety agents. Um, all of those, I think most of us have some experience with using and with our patients and having some, some adverse effects from. Um, also cardiovascular medications, medications that you know, affect blood pressure and pulse. Um, I know there's, there's lots of studies out there looking at those and we all know that you know, if we get that blood pressure too low or that pulse too low, that we're gonna you know, we're gonna run into some perfusion problems um, and some dizziness and lightheadedness. Um, and we know that again with our baroreceptors that we tend to um, become more sensitive to those blood pressure lowering effects as we get older. Um, but we can't forget opioids and other pain medications, uh, medications that primarily cause sedation and maybe some cognitive change. So there's some you know that believe that those might increase the fall risk. Um, and then last but not least, um, I, I've listed um, just this generic term, anticholinergics. Um, and anticholinergics are, um, there's certainly a class of medications that are known as anticholinergic drugs, but we have many drugs um, in other classifications that we, we consider to have anticholinergic properties. Um, certainly a lot of the antidepressants, especially the older tricyclics, um, some of the older antipsychotics, um, have a lot of anticholinergic side effects, um, things such as you know um, the drying out of the you know the mouth and the the eyes and you know slowing of the gut, uh, urinary retention, you know a lot of the traditional anticholinergic side effects, including dizziness and lightheadedness um, and orthostatic hypotension. 
So anticholinergics, while it's listed there, it's you know listed there more in the broad term uh, to include all medications that have anticholinergic effects, whether they're desirable or not. Okay, so just the facts. Let's look at the evidence. So I put this slide in there, and then I had a younger colleague look at my slides for review, and she says, I don't really have a clue why you put Jack Webb's picture there. I don't even know who Jack Webb is, um, which made, led me to believe that I've dated myself here. But when I was young, um, I used to enjoy a show called Dragnet, and there was a detective named Jack Webb, and he was very businesslike and always looking for evidence only, kind of the early evidence-based practice, I guess, as it goes with um, police work. Um, and one of his famous lines was just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. So, so we're going to talk, we're going to shift gears here now. We're going to talk about what evidence um, is out there um, uh, linking medications or certain classes of medications uh, with falls. And I want to start out by saying um, that most of our evidence is observational. We do not have randomized controlled trials looking at medications and falls per se. We do have a couple randomized controlled trials out there looking at different diseases and you know risks for falls and we have randomized controlled trials um, looking at medication withdrawal strategies and how that might impact fall rates. Um, but as far as linking absolute medications or medication classes with falls, um, the evidence we have is primarily limited to observational data. Um, another problem with the evidence is if you're looking at clinical trials, for example, and you're looking at RCTs of, of drugs, um, many times falls were not listed um, as an adverse event in the clinical trials, which seems really strange to me. Um, but we also have to realize that many of these clinical trials do not involve older adults. Uh, many of the clinical trials involve very much younger people. So we do need to be concerned about that. Confounding. Um, always a problem when we're talking about observational data. Um, and, and confounding in this case can occur by indication um, and also by polypharmacy. So by indication, it might be difficult to um, separate out um, the risk of falling for just having a certain condition, such as hypertension, um, and being treated for hypertension um, with a medication. Um, there's going to be risks um, both from having the hypertension and there's also risks from the medication. Um, also with depression and other um, diagnoses for which we use many of the medications on the, the list that we, we've already looked at. Um, we also have polypharmacy. Um, many people, um, as they become older, are on multiple medications. Um, and polypharmacy, certainly we'll find the evidence does speak to that. Um, but there's also the risk of drug interactions. Um, and whereas a medication might not cause a fall when it's by itself, when it's given with another medication, that um, interacts with its metabolism or excretion, certainly we get higher blood levels and it's associated with falls. So polypharmacy is also a risk factor. Um, we also have um, the definition of a fall, uh, which is, I think most of us understand, I mean, when we see someone fall, we, we, we know they fell. But when you, when you look at studies, you'll find that some studies are very good about a very strict definition of a fall. Um, and there's basically two fairly strict definitions out there. Um, and then there are some studies that they really just do never define what they mean by a fall. So the two um, definitions that that I encounter most when I'm looking at studies is the Kellogg definition, which is you know very specific. It's uh, a non-syncopal event that's not attributable to sustaining a violent blow, loss of consciousness, stroke, or epileptic epileptic seizure. Um, then there's the other definition which you see, which is the profane 
uh, definition, uh, P-R-O capital F-A capital N-E. Um, and that's more simply defined as an unexpected event in which participants come to rest on the ground, floor, or lower, lower level, which I think intuitively is what most of us think of as a fall. So polypharmacy, I listed it as a, as a, as a confounder um, because we do have um, evidence that, that polypharmacy does increase the risk of falling in older adults in both the um, community um, and in the long-term care setting. Um, and I will say that many of us that have worked in long-term care um, are familiar with guidelines that suggest that um, the residents should not be on more than nine or more meds. Um, and you know, you, this is where, where that um, guideline comes from. Um, certainly, the risk is increased fourfold in five to nine meds. Uh, over 10 meds, it's increased 5.5. Um, so so that, that's a pretty significant increase. Um, however, um, we do need to keep in mind um, that we shouldn't be looking at just a magic number. So nine is not the magic number. 10 is not the magic number. We really need to keep in mind that we're looking at patients and their diagnoses and, and the number of medications um, is not just a, we, we can't have an average for everyone. Um, certainly um, a person that has heart failure, um, if I'm looking at their medication regimen, I'll be quite surprised if they're not on four or five medications for heart failure. Uh, we have good evidence to support uh, use of multiple medications for various reasons in heart failure. Um, and to say that I need to reduce some of those medications to get down below this magic number of nine um, is not rational, rational care. So whereas polypharmacy does increase the risk, um, the way we need to look at that is we need to look at medications critically. Um, and certainly if we see medications that are on board that are being used to treat side effects um, of another medication, um, that's what I truly consider as polypharmacy, not uh, the need to be on multiple medications because I have multiple indications. So what evidence is out there? Um, there's been several meta-analyses done, um, most recently in 2009, which we'll talk about in just a bit. But prior to that, in 1999, um, Leipzig et al. did a systematic review and meta-analysis of that basically were reported in two different um, articles um, in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society. Um, one of the studies looked at just psychotropic medications, because remember we talked about those, you know, there's lots and lots of anecdotal evidence linking drugs such as benzodiazepines and antipsychotics <clears throat> with fall. Um, but they actually looked at studies um, and put them together to get a, a bigger number and to try to look at this a little bit more systematically. Um, they also looked at cardiovascular medications and analgesics, uh, and they lumped those in together. Um, and then Wolcott et al. in 2009 updated uh, the Leipzig data, and they used um, Bayesian, Bayesian statistics uh, to combine what Leipzig did with studies that have occurred um, since 1999. Um, and they included a few medication classes that were not included in the original study. And we're going to look through these um, in, in detail and see what, what is out there. <clears throat> so in 1999, Leipzig looked at, for psychotropics, they looked at 40 studies. 40 studies met their criteria, and there was a lot more studies that they had actually looked at. Um, but basically, 40 of them met their criteria. 
Um, this time period that the studies um, included was 1975 through 93. So, I mean, that was, some of those are going back their ways. I mean, 75, that's when I was in pharmacy school the first time. So um, that's, that's a, wide, a ways back there. Um, all of the studies were observational. They were either cohort, case control, or cross-sectional studies. Um, the criteria studies for, to be included in, in, in this group where subjects had to be over 60 years of age and taking um, one of the following groups, one or more of the following uh, classes of meds. And they included sedative hypnotics, antidepressants, uh, neuroleptics. Um, and that was a term that they used for antipsychotics. Um, and they pooled the data um, in eight different classes. And they, they lumped all the psychotropics together in one class. And then they broke them out as antidepressants. And then they further broke antidepressants out as tricyclics. Because remember, in the time frame that the studies were done, uh, most of the antidepressant use at that time was tricyclics. A neuroleptic, or again, as I mentioned, is now we refer to them as antipsychotics. Um, sedative hypnotics, um, some of which included benzodiazepines and others. Um, and then, of course, benzodiazepines. And then they further broke benzodiazepines out into both long-acting and short-acting agents. And on the screen here, you'll see the uh, pooled odds ratios with the 95% confidence intervals uh, for one or more falls um, associated with the various uh, of the eight classes there. Um, and what you can see um, is, and these are unadjusted odds ratios because there wasn't a lot of adjusting done for confounding in these studies in this time period. But as you can see, all of, this, all of the groups, with one exception, um, really had a statistically significant increase of uh, rate of falls. Um, and the thing that really shocked me was the only group uh, that did not increase the, the, uh, the risk for falls was the group that I think is probably most suspect, which is long-acting benzodiazepines. Um, it had an odds ratio of 1.32, but the confidence interval crossed one, so it was 0 0.98 to 1.77. Um, so, so that was kind of shocking to me. Um, it is important to realize that most of these, that these studies did not adjust for confounders. Um, so things such as um, confounding by indication or polypharmacy um, or confounding by indication were not included, although we did see some studies that did talk about multiple medication use and its risk, which we'll talk about. Um, most studies did find that combinations of two or more psychotropics increase the risk of falls, which I think that's kind of intuitive. I think most of us think that way, and it's um, been proven in, the, in this particular uh, pool of evidence. Um, and it also found that higher doses were associated with increased risk. Um, interestingly, they did not find an effect on odds ratio, ratio among subgroups of those less than 75 versus greater than 75. Uh, nor did they find uh, an influence on place of residence, so whether they were in community dwelling or in, in an um, institutional setting. Some of the weaknesses of this study, when we look at this data, these data, we have to really keep in mind of the study period. Um, and when you think about it, 75 you know, through the late 90s, um, think about the drugs we were using, the psychotropic drugs we were using back then. I know that you know, I was practicing through that period and you know, drugs like lorazepam as a sedative hypnotic, you know, Dalmain and that, that was fairly commonly used. Um, you know, we certainly had um, the antidepressants, amitriptyline was commonly used. Um, you know, a lot of the 
um, antipsychotics used at that time, of course, were the first generation, you know, a lot of them, and in fairly high doses. Um, we also need to think about um, how recommendations have changed since that time. You know, certainly um, in the long-term care setting where I practiced in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, we had a lot more use of antipsychotics in the nursing home for indications such as dementia than we do today. So, you know, we have to think of the study period and, and we have to look at this data a little bit skeptically. And of course, it is based on observational. Um, one piece of information that I would have found helpful would be um, time from initiation of medication to fall. And this basically was not assessed in the studies. Um, and, and we all tend to think that, or at least I think that um, when we start a person on a medication, there's a period at the beginning where, you know, they, until their body adjusts to it, their receptors become adjusted to it, that they might be at increased risk of fall. And that really was not, you know, assessed um, in the study. So that would have been a helpful piece of information. But probably the thing that I find most um, um, concerning is that we really don't know what happened from these falls. I mean, there may have been a lot of falls, but were there injuries from the falls? Um, so fracture rates uh, would have been helpful uh, because, you know, as we're, as we're thinking about critical outcomes here, um, certainly, you know, a person that, you know, sits down um, a little harder, that doesn't break anything, you know, is concerning. Um, but I'm really most concerned about a person that, that falls and breaks something. Some of the strengths of the study, certainly, uh, as with all meta-analyses, um, combining the number, the end for the different studies to get a larger number might provide a more precise answer to our question. Um, and they were able to take studies that were somewhat conflicting um, and try to, to make some sense of those. They had inconsistent and conflicting data or inconsistent and conflicting um, outcomes in some of the studies. Um, and then differentiating among the different classes of psychotropics was really helpful. So the summary of the findings, um, Leipzig et al. did find um, a consistent association between most classes of psychotropic medications and falls. Um, again, except the class that we probably are most concerned about usually, which is long-acting benzos. Um, they did find a higher risk in more than when folks were taking more than one psychotropic agent. Um, and of course, we need to remember that there was not adjustment made for confounding. Uh, the same group looked at cardio, um, cardiovascular drugs and analgesics, basically the same time period, this time from 75 to 93. Again, all observational studies, um, same um, inclusion criteria. They looked at, um, for the cardiac classes, they looked at uh, the classes listed here. Um, and as we look at these, we need to uh, remember that during this time period, we had a different group of drugs within these classes than we're, than we're using right now. In fact, some of the drugs in these classes we really don't use now. So we need to keep that in mind when we look at these data. So diuretics, they looked at both thiazides and loops. Uh, beta blockers primarily included propranolol, atenolol, and metoprolol. Uh, CNS um, drugs included clonopine and methyl dopa, which aren't really used too much anymore. Um, ACE inhibitors included um, primarily enalapril and captopril, calcium channel blockers. Uh, this was back in the days of nifedipine, diltiazem, and verapamil. Um, nitrates were pretty much, you know, the, the nitrates we use, um, isosorbide dinitrate, etc. Uh, digoxin still used a fair amount. Um, and then, of course, the type 1A antiarrhythmics, and these would include primarily procainamide and quinidine. Um, again, drugs that um, 
aren't used a lot nowadays. For the analgesic classes, they looked at narcotics or what which we would prefer to call opioids today, um, non-opioid analgesics or non-narcotics, um, NSAIDs and aspirin. Um, and it is important to realize that NSAIDs in those days, you know, there, we did not have the COX-2 NSAIDs, so those were all pretty much um, the non-selective. Um, so that, that does change, you know, some of the risk factor profile. Um, and of course, there wasn't as many NSAIDs as there are today. So under the cardiovascular pooled odds ratios, um, you can see those here. And as you can see, um, with the exception of the type 1A and antiarrhythmics and digoxin, um, none of them reached uh, statistical significance um, for increased risk of falls. Um, and again, you know, the type 1A antiarrhythmics, um, it's probably one of the, you know, one of the reasons why we don't use those much anymore, um, because many of the studies have found that some of the risk of those um, certainly outweighs some of the benefits. Uh, digoxin, again, we need to realize that in these day, in the days that of these studies, you know, we may not have been using some of the guidelines we use now, where we use lower doses of digoxin. Okay, for analgesics, um, basically none of the analgesic classes um, were associated with increased risk of falls. The odds ratios all cross one, and so they did not uh, reach any statistical significance for increasing risk of falls, which is kind of surprising. I know I kind of was thinking that some of the opioids or, or um, drugs of that class um, certainly might be associated with that. They did also find that increasing um, to three or four of any type of meds, uh, meds in this study increased the risk of recurrent falls. So mixing and matching among the classes, uh, certainly um, as you added um, agents, uh, you increase the risk of falling. Um, and of course, no difference again uh, in the age or place of residence. So as I've kind of been alluding to, as I've talked about this group, um, one of the major weaknesses is that, that this drug was, this meta-analysis was done prior to the use of many of the drugs we use today. Um, and certainly um, a lot of the recommendations have changed there. I know that we're using a lot lower doses of, of say diuretics than, than we used in the past. Um, I can remember it was very common for people to be on hydrochlorothiazide 50 or even 100 milligrams a day. Um, and now you know, we're basically using 12 and a half and sometimes less, and occasionally 25, but certainly never uh, 50 or 100. Again, we're talking about observational data. And again, we have no idea the time from initiation to fall. And with cardiovascular drugs, I felt that this was probably even more important um, just because, you know, we've known that a lot of times, you know, when we have someone start uh, antihypertensive, there's kind of a first dose effect. There's some lightheadedness that the body has to adjust to. Um, you know, we've often you know, made dosing recommendations about giving meds at a certain time of the day to try to uh, counteract some of that, uh, like giving it at bedtime if they're going to be sleeping all night. Um, but uh, we don't know that information. And again, we don't have fracture rates. And again, the uh, strengths are pretty much the same as in the previous meta-analysis. So uh, the Leipzig summary did find an increased risk of falls with diuretics, uh, I'm sorry, diuretic, total diuretic use, both loop and thiazide, but not individually, um, and digoxin, as well as the type 1A antiarrhythmic agents. 
And again, they found that increased number of meds increased the risk of falls, um, but there was little association of falls with most other cardiovascular and analgesic um, medications. So fortunately, um, Wilcott et al. looked at the meta-analysis of Leipzigadol and um, decided to update those. They looked at studies that have occurred since 96, and they basically found 22 studies that uh, looked at uh, uh, classes of drugs and falls. And from, they had a study period of 96 through 2007. So this includes a lot more of the drugs we're using today, a lot more of the doses we're using today. Um, they basically found a very large uh, number of participants, almost 80,000 participants, uh, greater than or, or equal to 60 years old. Um, and they took these 22 studies, um, some of which now are, were adjusted for confounding, so a little bit more robust data possibly. Um, and they used this um, technique called Bayesian statistics to combine the findings from the previous work um, with the studies from 96 forward to kind of have a, a larger uh, pool of, of information. And they, they grouped their, their classes a little bit differently. They had nine classes that are listed here, antidepressants, antipsychotics, sedative hypnotics, benzos, um, antihypertensives as a class, and then antihypertensive they broke out as diuretics and beta blockers. And then they also looked at narcotics or opioids and NSAIDs. On your screen here are the pooled odds ratios. And I have two columns, both the unadjusted odds ratio as well as the adjusted odds ratio. Now, not all of the studies um, adjusted for confounding. In fact, of the 22 studies, only 13 adjusted for confounding. So that's why we don't have adjusted odds ratios for all drug classes, but I've listed them there for those that they did have. Um, as far as the um, the adjustment, they adjusted for comorbidities such as age, uh, sex, um, disability, cognition, previous falls, and other medications. So there's quite a bit of, uh, there's quite a list there of things that we would commonly associate with falls. So it kind of gives us a little bit more information there. And as you can see, um, when we look at adjusted odds ratio, uh, the only two groups that showed a statistically significant increase of risk of falls were the antidepressants and the benzodiazepines. And again, they did not break out uh, long-acting versus short-acting benzodiazepines, but that's a pretty, pretty high odds ratio there, 1.41 with the confidence interval of 1.2 to 1.71 for benzodiazepines. Um, and the antidepressants as well was, was pretty high. And remember that this is um, looking at um, drugs that we're using today and included the SNRIs and the SSRIs in the antidepressant studies. Um, as far as the unadjusted odds ratios, um, which you can take as unadjusted, um, you can see there were uh, more classes that reached significance as far as increasing um, risk of falls, and those are in bolded there. Um, all antihypertensives, although um, diuretics um, also, beta blockers did not. Um, sedative hypnotics, antipsychotics, antidepressants, and benzos, all in the unadjusted odds ratio category are showing an increased risk. Um, narcotics are not, um, NSAIDs are. So, so a little bit different um, mix here than what we saw in the previous studies.
So there were little effect on the odds ratio among any of the subgroups, both the age less than 75 or greater than 75, as well as place of residence. One thing I would want to mention, uh, kind of going back to the previous slide um, and looking at the antipsychotics um, and the beta blockers. Now, those are two classes of drugs that, you know, we've seen some pretty significant change in prescribing um, in the last 15, 20 years. Um, beta blockers not used a lot for hypertension anymore as first line, probably more for heart failure and other conditions. Um, and certainly antipsychotics with the advent of a lot of the newer agents, um, as well as guidelines um, suggesting the use of antipsychotics um, in certain conditions such as dementia, you know, may not be the best practice. So, um, so those are things to keep in mind as we look at those numbers. So a couple weaknesses of this meta-analysis, again, of course, it's observational data, but that is the best we have in this case. Um, uh, method of fall assessment, we talked about a little bit earlier on, it did vary um, in, in all of the studies. Some used the Kellogg method and some the more generic or more uh, broad profane method. Um, and again, we don't have fracture rates, we just have number of falls. Probably one of the most important strengths of this study is the fact that we have more recent studies using newer medications and updated use and guidelines. Um, and also that we have adjustment for the first time of confounding uh, for, for more than half of the studies that were looked at. So this, this slide just kind of gives you a little bit of summary of the classes um, that were associated with falls, both the adjusted and the unadjusted um, odds ratios. And of note, um, the two classes not on this slide are beta blockers and narcotics, because in neither neither class uh, reached statistically significance in either the adjusted or unadjusted odds ratios. So I've given you a lot of information. What have we learned? Well, we do know, uh, based on observational data, that there is some association between certain medications and falls. Um, however, of course, um, when we're talking about observational data, we do point out the need for improved studies with consistent adjustment for confounding. Um, we did find that many of the medications that we've long suspected are for the most part still guilty, although there are a few surprises there. Um, I personally was a little bit surprised about some of them. Um, and that there's a lack of association with certain classes, um, in particular beta blockers and narcotics, for which you know, I think a lot of people have associ associated with them with falls for one reason or another. Um, we also know that um, there's a lot of medications out there for which we did not study, or there, there are not good studies, and we are again um, left with you know, clinical experience and, and anecdotal information. So let's go back to MB and see if we have a little bit more knowledge here, if we can make some decisions about um, MB's falls. So based on the evidence that, that we've evaluated, um, it appears atenolol probably is not going to be one of the leading culprits. Um, however, you know, we would certainly want to take blood pressures um, and pulses um, and see, you know, that we're not um, using an excessive dose. Uh, terazosin, we didn't look at terazosin in particular in any of the studies. It is classically an antihypertensive. Um, and I would imagine that in some of the older studies, um, in the original Leipzig um, 
meta-analysis. Probably some folks were on terazosin for blood pressure control. Um, but terazosin being an alpha blocker, um, primarily now we use it for BPH, um, but it still has its alpha blocking characteristic, which causes some vasodilation and certainly um, orthostatic hypotension. So even though it wasn't included in our, our data set, I think most of us would still consider that like a, a suspect. Uh, finasteride um, really hasn't been looked at, um, not considered a big fall risk for the most part. Citalopram and SSRI, um, some of the newer studies did show um, an association with um, dizziness and falls with SSRI. So even though you know we tend to think of them as a safer class of drugs than the tricyclics, there is some evidence linking those. Um, Tylenol PM, um, again, diphenhydramine wasn't necessarily studied, um, although we know that diphenhydramine is extremely anticholinergic, so even though we don't have good evidence, I think most of us would, from clinical experience, um, say that that might be um, a likely suspect. Um, and then diazepam. Remember, one of the earlier studies um, uh, suggested that long-acting benzodiazepines were not associated with falls. However, the later meta-analysis did associate benzodiazepines as a class with falls. So I think most of us would still say that the long-acting benzos, including diazepam, would be a little bit risky um, and because of their propensity to be accumulated in the body because of their lipophilicity um, as well as their, their long half-lives. So, you know, I could certainly, you know, make a case for, um, you know, picking a few here. Probably um, the most obvious would be the Tylenol PM and the terazosin. We could certainly, uh, and the diazepam would be the three that might be the, the biggest targets. Um, terazosin being an alpha blocker, we could use now the generic version um, of Flomax, um, which is a little bit more selective. Uh, Tylenol PM and diazepam, we could get rid of those. Realizing that if the person's been on diazepam for a long period of time, and if they're using it every night, we wouldn't want to stop it cold turkey, but we could certainly try um, a little safer sleep strategy, uh, such as sleep hygiene, uh, and maybe even trying some uh, melatonin, something like that, uh, to kind of break that uh, sedative hypnotic habit. So that kind of leads us into some strategies um, for minimizing the risk of falling. And we're going to look at the evidence for something that I think we've probably all heard about, which is vitamin D in falls. And I don't think anybody can read the lay press or any other press these days without hearing about vitamin D in something, although there's a little bit of pushback now, I believe. But there was some um, evidence, there's some studies out there looking at vitamin D um, and the impact on falls in older adults. Um, and this study from JAMA in 2004 was a meta-analysis of five randomized controlled trials. And you note these are RCTs here. We're not talking about uh, cohort studies uh, and other observational data. This is a little higher level of evidence. Um, they looked at about a little over uh, 1,200 patients, uh, mean age of 60, so a fairly young age group, really, um, as, as older adults go. And they looked at vitamin D supplementation compared with placebo or calcium supplementation. Um, and they found the adjusted odds ratio for falling was 0.78, and then the um, confidence interval there is 0.64 to 0.92. I think I've got a typo on the slide. I think that's supposed to be a 95% confidence interval, not an 85%. I apologize for that. Um, so that's a statistically significant reduction in risk. So, uh, and they went out to calculate the number needed to treat, uh, which turned out to be 15, which means we'd have to treat 15 people 
with vitamin D for this time period to, re to reduce one fall or to um, eliminate one fall, which that's a pretty good number needed to treat, really. 15 is not a very large number, considering for the most part vitamin D is fairly innocuous and, and fairly inexpensive. So, so, I mean, that kind of makes us, you know, a little bit more positive about vitamin D. But let's look a little bit further. So Cochrane um, did a review in 2010, um, and you can find this. Um, I've got the reference listed there at the bottom of the slide, also the last slide of the presentation. It's in the Cochrane Library. And this one's entitled um, Interventions for Preventing Falls in Older People in Nursing Care Facilities and Hospitals. Um, and this one was a little bit, um, um, kind of muddied the water a bit. Um, they did find a reduced rate of falls, so the RAR, which I hadn't seen that um, risk ratio before, but that's a rate uh, ratio. Um, they found that vitamin D in, in their study, or their collection of studies, reduced the rate of falls, but not the risk of falls. So um, that kind of muddies the water a little bit um, when we compare it with the JAMA, the JAMA article. So again, you know, we're left with two pieces of conflicting evidence. So, but we do know that there might be some benefit from vitamin D, um, and, and certainly that's something that we need to to consider for our patients. So, what other considerations um, can we use to minimize risk? And this is the, the following slides are just going to be a compilation of of clinical pearls um, to to consider whenever we're using medications in older adults. Um, and certainly we want to avoid high-risk medications whenever possible. Um, and the list that we've mentioned, the Beers criteria, the ACOF criteria, and others, um, and we know they, there are some very, very good lists out there that, that aren't really inappropriate to use in an older adult, but they might involve us using with a little bit more caution. Um, um, and avoid them when we can. You know, if we if we can avoid them and use safer alternatives, we definitely should do that. Um, within a class of medication, um, a high risk medication class, uh, we want to pick those with the least risk. So, you know, if we have say an antidepressant choice to make, um, and maybe even it's an anti or it's a tricyclic that we need to use for one reason or another, um, we would want to avoid those that are highly anticholinergic. So, for in the tricyclic class, for example, if we have to pick. We want to avoid amitriptyline, um, possibly use something a little bit less anticholinergic, such as nortriptyline. Um, selecting shorter-acting half-life agents, um, even though that the one meta-analysis did not show an increase in falls with long-acting, but did with short-acting, I think most of us still think that, that we should avoid, as a rule, um, long half-life agents in older adults. Certainly, if a side effect occurs and we have a long half-life drug, it's going to be there longer. And certainly, those drugs are going to accumulate. And unless we're very um, careful with adjusting our doses based on renal function, um, we're, we're going to have some higher blood levels than we need. Um, and if we do need to use drugs that are renally and hepatically cleared and that are somewhat risky, we need to dose appropriately. And we need to realize that you know renal function can vary. You know, a person may not have stable renal function, so we need to be aware of that. Uh, certainly, we need to main, maintain vigilance as we initiate and increase doses of medications. Um, and this is just the patient's safety net. So, you know, as we're thinking about starting a med, think of um, what, uh, what is the situation of the patient? Where do they live? Um, do they have someone with them? 
that could help them is their safety devices. Do they use a walker? Do they use a crutch or a cane? Um, are they in an institution? Are they in a place where you know, they can have accurate monitoring or adequate monitoring? Um, is the caregiver um, able to do some of the monitoring, to take the blood pressures, to you know, assess for some of the risk factors? Um, and this, incur this, this we need to remember should occur not only when we start drugs, but then sometimes we forget as we increase doses um, that, that folks are at an increased risk. Uh, we certainly want to dose meds associated with falls at times where they may result in uh, less chance of falls. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, with certain blood pressure meds, we initiate them with bedtime doses to kind of get that first dose when they're sleeping. However, um, if a person gets up a lot at night to go to the restroom, if they have BPH or, you know, nocturia, um, then we really need to, to rethink that logic because giving some, someone a medication that causes dizziness and lightheadedness or increased risk of falls, and then maybe three or four hours later, they're getting up in the dark uh, without a safety, uh, without a, a nightlight. You know, maybe they have to walk down a flight of stairs or up a flight of stairs to the bathroom, and that's probably not um, in the best interest of the patient. Uh, we need to recommend safety devices and methods, certainly walkers, canes, uh, et cetera. I tell people, you know, if you get up at night, you know, why don't, why don't you put a nightlight in your bedroom? Um, and really, you know, I have kind of a campaign against throw rugs. Um, I'm amazed at how many people have throw rugs in the bathroom, you know, so they get up at night, they, you know, stumble through a dark room and they get to the, the bathroom and, and, and there's a throw rug um, that, that, that's, that's slippery. So eliminate some of those um, common sense things that, that occur in most homes um, that, that can increase the risk of falls. Um, and then certainly education of patients and caregivers on the risk and strategies to minimize risk. It's very, very important. Another consideration is to evaluate the history of falls. Um, as I'm obtaining a medication regimen for our patients, um, I try to look at those medications that have been discontinued and try to make connections as to why they were discontinued. So certainly, you know, sometimes medications are discontinued because they're not effective. Um, but oftentimes they're discontinued because of side effects. And some of those side effects are dizziness or lightheadedness. And even if they didn't result in falls, I can look at those medications and try to make those connections. Um, and if a certain class of antihypertensive or, or psychotropic caused dizziness or lightheadedness, then I can you know, maybe make better recommendations in the future if we need to treat those conditions. Um, I'm thinking of a, a, a person that was in clinic um, recently it was a borderline hypertensive um, and had been for a little while. And we were kind of debating about um, initiating treatment. Um, and so we looked back and, and we did see that, that, that the person had been treated in the past. Um, but then on further investigation, we found out that the reason the medications were discontinued because, was because of increased falls uh, when the medication was started. And regardless of dose and agent um, in the class selected, the person kept falling. Um, so we made a decision to tolerate the borderline hypertension uh, because of that risk-benefit analysis. Uh, and then certainly assessing prior to initiation of therapy, you know, doing the gait and balance assessment, you know, making sure that they're not already orthostatic when we start medications that are going to affect blood pressure and pulse. Um, doing simple things such as a vision assessment um, and necessary um, lab assessments. Um, 
basically what we're trying to do is to just make sure that you know going forward you know we have our eyes open we know what's going on and we're, and we're being more vigilant and finally um, one of the most i think overlooked oftentimes consideration is assessing the total medication list of a patient you remember the evidence was pretty clear that you know increased number of meds um, increased rates of falls so um, we think we know all the medications our older adults take, um, but unless we're really, you know, good detectives, sometimes there's a lot of medications that, that are being used that we are not aware of. Uh, many people do not consider herbal supplements that they buy at the health food store or even some OTCs as medications. So, you know, when we're doing our medication history, we need to make sure we ask specifically, you know, what, medic what are you taking that you might get in an herbal uh, medication store and what over-the-counter drugs that you might pick up at the pharmacy or at the GNC or Vitamin World um, that are you taking in addition to what the, we have on your list here. Because many of them do have strong anticholinergic effects. Uh, many of them have antihistamines in there. All the OTC sleep aids are antihistamines. Um, and many of the herbal agents have things like St. John's wort, which is, you know, has SSRI type properties. So there's a lot of OTCs and herbals being used out there and a lot of them can you know, have additive effects um, with our medication list. And I'm gonna close with, um, I think what most of you have heard before, I'm sure you've heard before, but it's probably most appropriate when we're talking about medications and falls in the older adult. And it's something that I don't think we ever forget, but it doesn't hurt to be reminded. And it's to always to start low and go slow with our dosing. Um, and I would add the caveat to, to make sure we continue to monitor for ADRs um, and, and talk to our patients. Um, I thank you for your attention uh, and my references are on the final slide and thank you very much.